Good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you this morning as always. Uh, we are walking through the, the book of Philippians together. This is our, our series that we're uh, in right now. We like to go through um, books of the Bible. Uh, it's not the only way to do it, but that's, that's, uh, that's our favorite way to do it uh, and just take it passage by passage. And, and what we've seen in chapter one so far uh, is we, we've seen... Uh, the, the Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. We've seen his prayer for them. Uh, we saw last week his kind of his ambition, what, what drives him, uh, and, and how he wanted the gospel to advance. Uh, and today, I, I hope to look at his mindset, the mindset of the Apostle Paul, uh, and the mindset that, that God is calling us to in the same way. So we're going to just jump, jump right in here. Uh, three, three questions to guide our time. One, what was Paul's mindset? What was his mindset? Two, what kind of life does this mindset produce? And number three, how do we apply that in Tomball in 2021? Okay, so what was his mindset? What kind of life does that produce? And then how do we apply it? Let's pray once more, and then we'll, we'll dive into the, the text. Father, uh, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. Uh, thank you for your word, as always. Um, and Lord, I, I pray that your word would, uh, would fall on us uh, as good soil, Lord, if, if your word is the seed, uh, that we would be good soil to receive your word, Lord, that, that the, uh, the enemy would have no power uh, here in Jesus' name to come and to snatch away uh, any of the seed that is, that is sown, that uh, thorns and thistles and the distractions of this world and of this age uh, would not be able to choke out your word uh, growing and bearing fruit, that your word would, would go down deep and our roots would not be shallow and just blown, blown over uh, by any wind, but, but that we would... Uh, uh, bear fruit. We would grow and bear fruit to eternal life. Um, Lord, only you can do this in us. We need you. We need your help. Holy Spirit, please come and speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. First, what was Paul's mindset? What was Paul's mindset? Um, this is perhaps Paul's best and most famous one-liner. Uh, if it didn't talk about death, I think it would be on more coffee cups. Uh, verse 21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, he has just said in the verse before uh, that, that uh, his, his goal, he hopes and expects to be honored, uh, for Christ to be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. And so this verse explains of how, how that's possible, right? He says, it's possible for, for Christ to be honored in my body if I live or die because to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does he mean? Christ and gain. Well, he talks about this in the next, next verses where he goes on, and I think it's important to say he's, he's hypothetically speaking here, right? He, he, some try to you know, say that Paul's, he's contemplating suicide or something. No, totally not the case, right? That's clearly uh, from, from the rest of these verses, from the rest of the book, uh, that is not happening. Um, instead, he, he's, he's riffing on the uncertainty of how his imprisonment could end, and, and he's saying, if I had a choice, man, I'm not sure what I would choose, all right? So look at verse 22, now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, right? What does it mean to, be, to, be, to live as Christ? Well, he says, if I, if I live on, that means fruitful work. I get to keep doing fruitful work for Jesus. And we talked about last week, Paul's identity as someone, he saw himself fundamentally as being in Christ. He had this stable identity in Christ. And what follows from that is Paul saw the work that he did in evangelism, in church planting, in pastoring, encouraging churches, engaging opposition, bearing witness before rulers and authorities. All of this 
is Christ in the sense that he does this in Christ. He lived his whole life in Christ. And so he gets more of Jesus through it, right? Through it all, through all of this ministry that he does. It's like he says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. Paul's relationship with Jesus was such that he could say, if I keep living in the body here, I'll get Jesus. It's a win. Not only that, he says, to die is gain. To live as Christ, to die is gain. What does that mean? Why doesn't he just say, to live as Christ, to die as Christ? That's sort of what he means. Why does he say gain? I think he's saying, well, it's actually, there's actually a better even, even <laughs> it's actually better than just gaining Christ like I will here. Right, this is certainly a countercultural statement everywhere and every time. Dying is always losing in the world. But Paul continues to flesh this out. How is dying gain? Look at verse 22. I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. It's pretty straightforward. To die is to be present with Christ immediately, which is far better. It's far better to be with Christ immediately than to not be with him immediately. It's going to be better to see Jesus face to face, right? To, to hug him, to fall down before him, to sit beside him and talk with him. I wonder if you believe that. One of my kids was, was telling me, he was in the back seat this week and uh, he told me that he, he loved me more than God. And I was like, well, buddy, you know, actually we, we, we should love God the most, you know, because he's the best. He created everything. He loves us. And he was like, okay, I love you the same. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. I'll take it, right? Uh, it's so it's hard, it's hard to love someone who you haven't seen more than someone who you have seen, isn't it? It's difficult. Um, and, and I think this is something that, that younger Christians, um, which I still like to consider myself, um, can learn from older saints. Right? I find that Christians who've had more life experience uh, realize with more clarity that death is, in fact, gain. Right? Being with Christ is going to be the culmination and the consolation that will finally satisfy us. Whether you believe it or not, though, death is gain for a Christian, right? Death is gain. And this is amazing. This is amazing that, that Christianity deals with death. Death is, is, our, is the great enemy of mankind, the great and incongruent disaster of existence, the, the universal fear of, of all men, the, the result and the punishment from our rebellion against God. But Christ defeated death. And as Paul says in another place, uh, death actually belongs to us now. De death functions as our servant. Death simply brings us to Jesus, right? It's amazing that our greatest fear becomes, because of Jesus, simply a doorway into life. In uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, uh, it's, it's the final book of his, his classic series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and, and they get into Aslan's country, right? They get into the new Narnia, which is Lewis's description of heaven and the new earth, our, our forever home. Uh, and a group of people and, and talking animals 
Um, which, uh, you know, if you know Narnia, you know that there's talking animals in Narnia. Um, and actually, there, I think there are going to be talking animals on the new earth too. Balaam, the snake, just saying. Uh, that's, that's a detour. We're not going to go there. Uh, but uh, they're, they're exploring. They're on this the new Narnia, and they're, they're exploring this new country. And here's what it says. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. When we see Jesus, we will be in our real country. We will finally be home. And this is the vision. This is the mindset, the eternal mindset that Paul had. Right to live is Christ, to die is gain. He, he comes out of his hypothetical musing on, on death and life, and he says in verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And maybe he's worried, he's like, is, he gonna, is Paul gonna say something that's gonna get him executed? Like, no, 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 I'm gonna, I'm gonna remain. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know I'll remain with you and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. He says, I'm sure that I'll stay here and we'll see you again for your progress and your joy in the faith. And that's what he's writing to them for, right? He's writing for their progress, for their joy. They would boast in Jesus. They would find their life in him and glorify him. And these verses function in in the letter as as a transition from Paul's telling them about his affairs, kind of how he's doing, which is what he's been doing in chapter one so far, um, to talking about them, to changing the, 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 uh, the perspective and talking about them and their situation. And this brings us to our second question. What kind of life does this mindset produce? If if we have this eternal mindset, uh, which clearly Paul wants us to have as well, how, how, you know, what kind of life does it it, uh, produce? Verse 27, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul was writing writing to Philippi, which was a Roman colony. Um, They were proud citizens of Rome. Right? And it meant something to be a Roman citizen, to have the privileges and the rights of belonging to this empire. And Paul uses that idea of citizenship, but, but he, he turns it on its head. Right? He says, uh, we're not citizens of an earthly kingdom, we're citizens of heaven. Right? Just like Philippi, you're a Roman colony, you're in Macedonia, you're not in Italy near Rome, but you're, you're a Roman colony, you're, a citizen, you're citizens of Rome, um, even though you aren't there. Um, you, are, you are citizens of heaven, even though you're not there. You're an outpost of the kingdom. And he says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Right? For us, we could translate, we are American citizens, yes, but that's not our ultimate allegiance. Right, ultimate allegiance is a heavenly one. We are citizens of heaven. And it says, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so what does that mean? What, what is the gospel and, and what does it mean to live a life worthy of it? Well, gospel, uh, as you may know, the word uh, literally means good news. It's, it's the Greek word for good news. And so it's the good news of Christ or the good news about Jesus the good news is the central message of our life and our faith and of the world. The good news is that though we who were created by God to love and honor him have rebelled against him, he made a way for us to be reconciled. 
right? Jesus Christ, the son of God, came to earth, fully God, fully man. He lived a normal human life, um, except he never sinned. So I guess it was actually an extraordinary human life, <laughs> right? He, he was arrested uh, basically out of envy and hatred. He was wrongly accused and condemned to die. He was executed in the most excruciating way possible. In fact, you can hear in the word excruciating, you hear the word, cru- the same root for crucify, right? Crucifix. Uh, he, he de- the, the, this way of death defined what the word excruciating means. He died on the cross, They buried him in a borrowed tomb. And then three days passed. And as he predicted what happened, his neurons started firing again. His lungs filled up with air. The the cold blood in his veins started pumping again. And he walked out of death and he walked out of his grave. This is good news for you and for me because though we are rebels against God, we can trust Jesus and by grace be covered by his sacrifice, be forgiven, be cleansed, be united to his life. As, as Jesus walked out of death, so we will walk out of death. And, and I always wonder, um, if, you're, if you're here and, and you don't believe this, right? If you're not a Christian, you'd say, I, I, don't, I don't believe all that stuff. Um, first of all, I'm just glad you're here and you're listening. Um, but my question for you is, is just, don't, don't you wish it were true? Like just pretend it were true for a moment. Wouldn't it be awesome? Right? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could actually get the weight of guilt and shame off of your heart? Wouldn't it be awesome to, to know the perfect love of a good father? Wouldn't it be awesome to know that everything will be okay in the end? And I get that there are tons of barriers to faith uh, and, and people have lots of baggage from, from church, stuff that happened in churches, all, all that stuff. And that's not insubstantial. Um, but, but if I'm preaching the thing that, that the Christian church has preached since the apostles saw the Lord Jesus alive again, which I, I think I am, then this is a message, this is a truth that has given hope and meaning to, to literally billions of people. And so I'm just saying, don't do what, what a lot of modern people do who, who have had some interaction with religion or the church before and just write it off lightly or, or flippantly, right? D- dig deep, make sure, make sure that this good news isn't actually true, <laughs> right? That's what I would encourage you. If someone told you that you were the heir to a vast fortune, wouldn't it be at least worth looking into the details a little bit, even if you were pretty certain it wasn't true? And, and if this good news is real, it's much better than a vast fortune. Now, if that's the gospel, then what is a life worthy of the gospel? Right, that, the message of what Jesus has done for us, that's the gospel, the good news. What, what is a life worthy of that good news? Well, I think that's a, pretty, that's a pretty good summary of a lot of what the rest of the book of Philippians is actually about. Um, but, but let's look at how Paul starts explaining it right off the bat, verse 27. Uh, Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you're standing firm in one spirit and one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. I think we see one main idea here, and that's unity. Unity. I think if we live lives worthy of the gospel, we will be unified. Three ways, I think, here that we'll be unified. It says, first, standing firm in one spirit. 
Standing firm in one spirit. This is talking about, I think, the Holy Spirit. That's the way that Paul uses the word, the Greek word there, pneuma. It means Holy Spirit. Those who live worthy of the gospel stand firm in the Holy Spirit. Right? Not depending on themselves, but on the presence of God in and with them. I, and and we sh- it's, it says one spirit. We share the same spirit. There's one Holy Spirit that we all receive right, as Christians. We stand firm in him. Second, it says in one accord or of, of one mind, some translations there, of one heart. Those who live lives worthy of the gospel are unified with one another, right? loving, sharing, uh, praying, helping, bearing each other's burdens. We're, we're on the same page we're on the same team, right? I find that to be such a helpful analogy in marriage, right? You know, in marriage, you, you just get, there's just days where you're grumpy and you just assume the worst and you just get off. And it's just so helpful to be like, babe, we're on the same team, same team, right? Yes, we are, right? Okay, reset, right? And then it should be the same with, with our church family. We're on the same team. We're together in this. Third, it says contending together for the faith of the gospel. We not only share the same spirit, the same accord, the same mind, but we share the same goal. We are contending for what Paul has been talking about for most of chapter one, the advance of the gospel. We contend for truth. We contend for the gospel. We contend for faith in Christ. The church should be unified in these ways. And Paul's going to continue to harp on these next week uh, as, as at the beginning of chapter two, which is maybe the, the most beautiful passage on unity in the Bible. Um, but, but we can flesh it out here a little bit and say, doesn't it make sense? If, if we're all citizens of heaven, right? That's our citizenship. We belong to a different country. Uh, we'll all be there together. Doesn't it make sense that we would have the kind of, this kind of unity now? Can we see brothers and sisters in our church, right, in our town, all across the country, all around the world even, brothers and sisters who, who we would probably disagree with about a lot of things and who would disagree with us about a lot of things. And, but, but they trust Jesus, right? And, and can we be unified with them? I, I think we draw some really hard lines these days. You know, we divide over much our churches and denominations and social networks define who we are against everyone else, you know. Uh, and and I, I don't think denominations are bad, uh, but there's only one church, right? And it's not our church, <laughs> right? It, it's, it's the church triumphant, the church eternal, the church spread out across the ages, right? Everyone who proclaims and believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can have unity in that. Um, Steve Mitwitty, who used to be an elder at, at the church before he moved away, uh, had a saying that pops into my head when I hear, uh, you know, whenever I hear of some Christian canceling another Christian or dividing, you know, over something really silly. Um, Steve would say, man, he thinks it's just going to be him and the lamb. <laughs> right? Like, man, that, that really, that really uh, judgmental person is going to be pretty surprised in heaven who's there. You know? Um, and honestly, I think we all will be. I think God's mercy is wider than we imagine. But can we get past the artificial and the surface level divisions? Can politically conservative and politically liberal Christians argue about public policy 
and love each other deeply? Can Christians of different racial and economic backgrounds leave their prejudices at the door, be a bit uncomfortable to accommodate each other, and consider the other as more significant than themselves? I hope so. But, but now I'm stepping on, on Pastor Kevin's sermon next week, so I better stop. A, a life worthy of the gospel is a life of unified contending for the gospel together in one spirit, along, along with one other thing, it says, in verse 28, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. And I think this leads to our last question. How do we apply this in Tomball in 2021? Uh, not being frightened, verse 28, in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. If we do have this eternal mindset, right, if our hope is in Christ, if to live is Christ, to die is gain, if we live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ because our citizenship is in heaven, we will face opposition and persecution. All right, Paul says elsewhere, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why is that? Why does a heavenly-minded person, right, someone who trusted Christ, trust Christ, living a godly life, why do they face persecution? Right? Have you ever wondered that? Like, I understand why Christians who are jerks get hated. You know, there are Christians who are jerks. Sorry, uh, none of you, right? But some. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, like, but but I'm talking about saints, like people who just love others so well. Like, why do they get persecuted? And I think the answer is that there's more behind opposition than just human agents, right? Yeah, humans are often involved, but Paul reminds us at the end of Ephesians, our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and powers, the rulers in the heavenly places, right? We fight demonic forces, ultimately. There's a real spiritual battle afoot, and those who know that and are active in it will get opposition, now, can I be honest with you? No. Toby's saying no, so never mind. I'll just I'll skip that point. Uh, <laughs> no, it, 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 this is hard. It's hard to preach on here and now. Um, and, and I struggled in preparation. Uh, but, but it's not hard to preach because it's complicated. Right? I think it's kind of clear what, what Paul's saying here and, and he's expecting, right? He's expecting that Christians will be eternally minded, Right, we'll live out their faith together. We'll walk in the spirit. We'll be united in contending for the faith of the gospel and they'll get opposition. They'll receive pushback and suffering for that. Right, they'll face opposition rooted in spiritual forces right, and manifest in people opposing them, people hating them, people ostracizing them, people putting them in prison like Paul is, people even threatening their lives, killing them. Paul even says in 29, I don't know if you noticed this, it's been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. Right? It, it, granted. <laughs> it's been granted to you. It, it's an honor. It's a privilege to be mistreated for the sake of Christ. Salvation is a gift, right? It's been granted to you not only to believe, right? Salvation is a gift, but to suffer. Suffering is also a gift for the name of Christ. 
And that's all pretty easy to see, right? It's just right there, and it's easy to say that. The hard part, I think, is applying it in Tomball in, in the United States in 2021. Because what, honestly, do we know of persecution? We have our challenges, right? We have our hardships, for sure. Uh, a lot of those would be called first world problems. Um, and the Bible talks about suffering in general and how God uses it in our lives. And I don't mean to downplay the suffering that we, we do have but that's clearly not what Paul's talking about in this passage. Right? He's saying you will receive opposition for your contending for the gospel. Because of your explicit allegiance and fidelity to Jesus, his message, his way, you're going to suffer. To many of our brothers and sisters around the world, right, in China, in Iran, in Pakistan, in Turkey, like, this would make perfect sense. They'd be like, yep, that's my every day, right? All right but, but, but where this convicts me, and again, I'm just I'm trying to be honest here, is that I don't experience a lot of opposition for my fidelity to Jesus. What do you do with that? I have to entertain the possibility that it's because I'm not being loyal to him. Maybe, in, in many ways, I'm swimming along in the river of our culture, right? Oblivious to how influenced I really am. So, so don't hear me saying this from a place of, of competence. <laughs> right? Hear me saying this from a place of, of struggle and of conviction myself. What makes this particularly challenging for us now here? A couple things, right? This list could be 100 things long, but we're so rich, We're the richest people in the history of the world, right? If you're a single adult in America making $30,000 a year, you are in the top 5% of the richest people in the world. Like even poor people here are rich. We have so much stuff. It goes along with that, doesn't it? We have so much stuff. Like think about that we, we like I don't know if you've, if you've looked at um, like the average size of a house, even in America in like 1950 versus now, like our houses are getting bigger. Uh, but but we, have, we not only have bigger houses, but we like rent storage units because we can't fit all of our stuff in our ginormous houses. Like that's a great business to get into, storage units, <laughs> right? Isn't that amazing? We have so much stuff. We, we are so comfortable. It's another one. Right, we have every modern convenience. Right, we sleep on better sheets and eat richer and more varied meals than any you know, king in the ancient world. I just think about you know, a king in the ancient world like putting on one of our socks. Be like, wow, that's a great sock. <laughs> We're so comfortable, right? We, we, are, we are, what else? We're so busy, Oh, how are you doing, man? I'm so busy, right? Like, yeah, me too. <laughs> it's this badge of honor or something. We're, so, we're involved in so many activities. It's nonstop. We're so distracted, right? We're so distracted. According to a recent study I saw, as Americans, we spend an average of almost five and a half hours a day on our phones. Time well spent. 
If you don't believe me, there's a little app called Screen Time on your iPhone. You can see your own average. It's a scary one to open. Um, we, we are so, we're so tired. What else? We're so tired. Aren't we tired? Man, I got this from a, from a little book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. Um, do you know that before electricity, people slept an average of 11 hours per night? People talk about the good old days. I'm like, that was the good old days. I think that was it. I think those were them, right? Wow, 11 hours. Like we're so, we, we burn the midnight oil and we get up early to work. And you could just keep going like about our, our culture. These are just things that we're, these are, this is the water we swim in. So do you see the challenge? How are we supposed to apply this to us now? And, I, and I'm not trying to, to be radical. Um, I, I'm just trying to, to preach the Bible, right? Uh, the only thing I know to do is to just start where we are and ask for mercy and, and try to be obedient, right? Like, look at verse 27. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Can we say with a clear conscience that we are living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ? Are we in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not afraid of anything from our opponents? What can we do? Four kind of practical things. One is just take honest stock of where we are. Isn't this how it always starts? Be honest with yourself. Be honest with each other. Where are you compromised Where are you living for yourself instead of for Jesus? Where have you unconsciously just gone along with our culture's vision for the good life instead of evaluating and, and out of obedience to Jesus and his way, go, going a different way? Where are you motivated by fear instead of by love? Where are you driven by material comfort rather than eternal reality? Where, where are you not making the best use of your time for the days are evil? Where are your hopes set on the things of the world rather than on the things above? I think we have to be honest. Right, second, we confess our sins. Confess our sins, right? This is, uh, this is the amazing thing. Jesus says, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's in 1 John 1. Right? It, we, we sometimes, I think, think about confession and uh, being like, okay, that's how you become a Christian. You confess your sins, you're forgiven of everything, and then you go on in your life. Yeah, yes, that's true. Right? That is the start. But, but it, we also continue, right? And just as Jesus covered our sins then, right, he covers them today. Right? And so as we, are, as we realize and we go, oh, sh man, that, this is bad, right? Uh, we can go to Jesus, right? We can go to him. Uh, and, and if we confess our sins, the promise is, He's faithful and he's just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and he will forgive us. This is why we can be honest. 
Number three, we can ask for the Holy Spirit. Ask for the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this in our own power. And, and we're, we are to stand firm in him. We're to be steadfast in one spirit together, right? Uh, so this is the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus says in Luke, if, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him? So ask for him, right? And yes, we get the Spirit when we are saved, of course, right? But Paul says, keep being filled by the Spirit, right? It's something that we can ask for. We can ask for him. We can ask for his presence, ask for his power, ask for wisdom, ask for his help. And we need to cry out for, to him. And number four, we can live in ways of obedience that creatively challenge the status quo. In a world that, that questions authority and asserts radical individualism, I mean, be devoted to the local church. And man, you, you, seem, you treat that church like they're your family. They are my family. <laughs> you got it. Right? In a world that, that prioritizes activity and achievement, intentionally do less. Right? Rest, Sabbath, go slower. Don't take the promotion. I, I don't know, like, what does it mean? In a world where we're more and more isolated from our physical neighbors, practice radical hospitality. I open your home to others. I think this is one of the ways the church can shine. People aren't doing this, right? Practice hospitality. In a world where hatred and outrage are the default, practice enemy love, right? Just, I, I will not hate anyone. I refuse to see this person as less than someone made in the image of God who deserves my love. Right, we could go on. Like, what, what is God calling you to? What kind of obedience is God calling you to, you to that to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, to challenge the status quo? What does faithfulness look like for you? In a room uh, with, with this many people in it, some of you, um, I, I feel like I just have to say, are, are so compromised by sin that, that you, you really know where you need to start. Right, right, so you're enslaved to pornography. No, you're a slave to, to hatred or to unforgiveness. You're, you're a slave to, to numbing yourself with substance, right, with the drugs or alcohol. You're, you're addicted to, to online shopping or to gambling. You're addicted to video games, maybe. Your marriage is on the brink. Like one, something like that. I, I think your first step is simpler. Right, what, what, is, what does it say in John 8? The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Dragging that sin into the light is the most painful thing you could think of, I know, but it's the only way to freedom. It's the only way to freedom. This is your first step. Right? And I know that Satan will be in your mind and he'll be saying, but what about what that would do to the kids? What about that would do to my spouse? What about how that would affect my reputation? Right? And so you have the choice. You can either listen to Satan or you can listen to, to Jesus, right? He says, the truth will set you free. He says, if you confess your sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive you. Ask for help. Come find 
a pastor, to, to tell your spouse, tell your friend, talk to someone in your group, like get help. I would just beg you to do that. It's, you can, right? It's, it's a safe place. We're all sinners in need of grace, <laughs> right? We all start in the same place. Everyone in this room is so bad. I am so bad. The only way that I could be saved is if the son of God came and gave his life. And he did out of love. It's amazing. May God make us people who, who actually are imperfectly but obediently living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ, whatever that costs us, right? And, and isn't that where we go? It's like, well, yeah, but if I do that, I'll have to change this. I can't do this anymore. I, well, I, I got to move houses. I, like, okay, what are we saying there? It's like, this isn't worth giving up to follow Jesus? <laughs> no, no, he's worth it. He's worth it, whatever it costs. We have to figure out how to do this together here and now, right? This is our discipleship challenge, right? You, like, Paul isn't living right now. He's not the one figuring this out. You are. Like, we are the disciples of Christ now in this time with Wi-Fi. How do we follow Jesus, right? That, like, this is, this is us, this is, this is our, our challenge. We have everything we need in the word, with each other, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? He'll never leave us. And because of Jesus, we literally have nothing to lose, <laughs> to live as Christ and to die as gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word uh, this morning. Um, Lord, thank you that, that you, you don't pull any punches. Um, thank you for challenging us as we need it. We need you. We need your help. Would you please come and help us? We, we are compromised in so many ways that maybe we don't even realize, Lord. We want to follow you, and, and it's, it's, it's difficult here it's difficult to have an eternal mindset. It's difficult not to just caught, get caught up in the same things that everyone else is caught up in. Would you draw us to yourself? Would you give us uh, a, a vision of reality, a vision of, uh, of eternity, a vision of your love that we can't shake, that orients us, that anchors us? pray for anyone in here who doesn't know you and Lord that you would reveal yourself to them that you would pour your love into their hearts by your Holy Spirit in, in a way that they can't deny we love you Lord we need you in Jesus name I pray amen